You're listening to the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast, your number one source for discussions about the Vols and Lady Vols basketball programs. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Now, get ready for a new episode of Vol Basketball Fever. Hello, everyone, and welcome in to another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. I am Nathaniel Rutherford. I am joined this week by Ryan Shumpert with a guest host for me here on the podcast, not Gene Henley. Ryan, thank you so much for uh, hopping on with the podcast for me. Yeah, of course. I enjoy coming on here and, and talking ball whenever I get the invite. Yeah, man. Happy to have you on here. Ryan, of course, uh, works over at RockyTopInsider.com. I've had him on the podcast before, so if you uh, I've listened to the podcast for a while. You'll know who Ryan is, but just to give you a little uh, recap, you can find him at rshump00 on Twitter. And of course, like I said, he is the beat writer at Rocky Top Insider, uh, covering just everything about Tennessee sports over there. But he does a lot of basketball coverage and I, and I think does a really good job of covering Tennessee basketball over at RTI. So I wanted to get him on here again to talk about Tennessee hoops. But again, if you're new here to Vol Basketball Fever, welcome in. If you're watching this on YouTube, give this video a like and subscribe to the channel while you're here as well. If you're listening on podcasts, thank you so much. Uh, if it's your first time, definitely thank you. You can find us everywhere you find podcasts, uh, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, you name it, we're there. Just find us there. And we're on Twitter and Facebook at Vol Hoops Fever on Twitter and Vol Basketball Fever on Facebook. Well, Ryan, the, the first kind of news here before we get into even any games and stuff we obviously have to talk about is the unfortunate injury to Olivier Kamwa. Uh, he hurt his, hurt his leg, hurt his ankle, excuse me, um, against South Carolina over the weekend. And it, it didn't look good. Like in terms of, you know, the injury itself, I mean, didn't really look like he twisted anything. Didn't look bad, but his, his reaction didn't look great. Him sitting on the bench didn't look great. And then it came out, I think Rick Barnes said over the weekend on Sunday that, you know, they didn't, we're actually expecting it to be too bad. We're waiting MRI results. And then Monday it came out that, he's going to have surgery and expected to be out rest of the season. How big of a blow is that? Because I was looking at Camwell as a guy this year who's been enjoying a breakout season. And then he really, in SEC play, had been probably Tennessee's best overall rebounder for the most part, I think, in SEC play. And kind of seemed like he was starting to really figure out his role and be more of a more productive force. And now, unfortunately, out for the year. So how big of a blow is that Tennessee, in your opinion? It's definitely a blow. I think there really hasn't been a single one of Tennessee's front court players. that has been really consistent this year, game in and game out. Now I think Camwa has had been the best one. I think he'd probably been the most consistent. So it's certainly a loss in the short term. I don't think it's going to be debilitating for Tennessee. Uh, when you look at, I think they were trending more and more towards playing the four guard look, the small ball lineup with Josiah James at the four. I think the last five games, six of their top 10 most used lineups uh, were small ball lineups. And I think that, you know, I think that lineups are best lineups definitely from the offensive standpoint. And I think they hold their own on the defense too, especially when you have Chandler and Ziegler both in it, providing that ball pressure. So from that standpoint, you know, it's not a debilitating loss, but when you look at it, Tennessee's chances of going with it's more big lineups. Now you're almost going to have to play uh, John Fulkerson and Euros Plastic at the same time. I think that's been one of Tennessee's worst lineups just because of the lack of spacing they provide. And then I think when you, Look more long term. What's the ceiling in this Tennessee? When you look at matchups in the NCAA tournament, I think Olivia Camwa is definitely Tennessee's best post defender. And when you look at having to lock down a, a guy like a Kofi Coburn, uh, which would be a pro, would be a, a nightmare matchup for Tennessee with Olivia Camwa. 
but he would be the natural guy to guard him. Or, or a, uh, you know, a Jabari Smith, Tennessee will play Auburn in a few weeks. I think Cam Wall would have been a natural guy to guard him. Now Josiah James then, you know, certainly capable. But I think when you get into the matchups, when you get at what Cam Wall does from the defensive end, both the rim protection and his versatility, I think it's a really big blow and where certain matchups are going to be a lot worse for Tennessee now than they would have been before. Yeah, and I think it, we'll, we'll get to it in a second, but I think it's can be magnified this the upcoming game on Wednesday when Tennessee plays Mississippi State because they like to play uh, three big guys really that measure six nine or taller. Of course, that that is assuming, and I think he will be, but that's assuming that uh, Tolu Smith is back and he's, he got back against Arkansas, so I'm assuming he'll play. But they they play three guys: Garrison Brooks, uh, Tolu Smith, and then Javion Davis Fleming, who are all six nine or taller. So they're going to be tested pretty quickly about whether or not they uh, go more small ball or not. But I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to mention that too. That you know, looking at Ken Palm and, and just watching games too. Aside from the normal starting five tens he's had with Uro, Olivier, Josiah, Kennedy, and, and Vescovy, uh, like you said, the most the most used lineup behind that really has been a you know Josiah at the four, either Uro, excuse me, either Fulkerson or Olivier at the five, and then a, a combo of three guards. Usually, the Sakai and Kennedy, but also with Vescovy in there a lot, Powell in there some. It seems to me though that most of the time it's been Fulkerson at the five, but I, I've I've noticed more and more that Cam Wall was getting more play at the five there too. Do you trust with the way Fulkerson's been playing this year? I know he's still probably expected to come off the bench. And I, I saw the predicted or projected starting lineup against state was going to be with Powell in the starting lineup, which I think is interesting. Um, but looking at that small ball lineup at the five, do you trust Fulkerson to be the more consistent five? Cause I, I think like you were talking about with spacing and especially with rim protection, I thought Camwell brought a lot more defensively, especially at that five spot when Tennessee went small ball. Do you think that Fulkerson can can man that position more long term, or do you think maybe this is a chance where we finally see maybe the light come on for Brendan Huntley Hatfield? Because I'm with you, like Urosh had his moment for a bit there. He's still been more productive overall this year than I expect him to be, but he's not a guy I want consistently playing 20 minutes a game, for example. Uh, so, so basically, do you think this is Ferguson's spot to retain for the small ball lineup, or do you think maybe see, we see more Brandon Huntley Hatfield in the five moving forward in the small ball lineup? I think you see more opportunities for Brandon Huntley Hatfield and other guys. Do they take them? You know, I lean towards thinking John Fulkerson's going to get most of those minutes, but at the same time, I mean, none of those guys have been consistent, and it's, it's the same with Camwai. And that's why I, you know, I've, I've heard some people complain about it. I like the way Barnes has handled the big men rotation as of late. He's going to get all four of those guys into the game in the first five, six minutes, get him a couple minutes, and then he's going to ride with who's playing well. And I think this is what you have to do when you can't count on any of those guys to come in consistent night in and night out. And I think uh, Stout had it from last week, and I think it still held true. Uh, maybe Camwell might have done it um last week too but there hadn't been a Tennessee player who had scored five points and recorded five rebounds in back-to-back games in SEC play it only happened one time Euros Plasage did it in the LSU and Florida game back-to-back besides that none of Tennessee's front court players did it I, I imagine Josiah James has done it so but uh the traditional four guys you just don't have the consistency so when you pose that question I think Rick Barnes doesn't have a, a great deal of confidence that any of them are going to go out and do it in a night in and night out basis so I think it's going to be a lot of trial a lot of opportunity for someone to step up and be consistent, I don't ex- uh, particularly expect any of that to happen because they haven't showed us consistency at this point. But I, I do think Fulkerson's probably the best one of those options. And if you're going to break it down, who's going to get the most minutes in that lineup? He would be my guess, but I think it's going to be a lot of searching for answers uh, over the next two or three weeks. Wow, that is a good stat. Uh, I didn't know that. And you're right. It, it, 
Olivier did do it in this against South Carolina. He he had seven points, five boards. But yeah, before that, it was Roche was the only one that did it in SEC play. And technically, you could count. I mean, technically, you could count what Olivier did because he he did get nine and eight against Texas, which they're not an SEC team yet, Ryan. But they're about to be an SEC team, and they are a high major team. But but no, your point still stands. Like Tennessee's big men have been very inconsistent. And Gene and I talked about it. Um, I think in a podcast. I don't think it was last episode, but maybe episode before last. That it's a case of probably for Tennessee riding the hot hand in the forward position, and and you know whether it's Urosh, whether it's Fulkerson, now it can't be Cam Wall, but what maybe I mean it probably won't be Huntley Hatfield, but maybe it is him. Um, but this is I think where Tennessee's going to have to do this year is they're going to have to play Josiah at the four. They have Powell, who's another six six guy. I think it's another chance for a guy like Jemai Meshack to get more minutes as well. I mean, do we? I, I think it's just a. I don't know. Does this change? Does Olivia's injury and the fact that Tennessee's already thin front court, you know, rotation is now basically down to three guys. Um, and again, they were playing more small ball, like you said. But does the fact that he's out now for probably the remainder of the year and you're going to have to do more small ball, does it change your kind of feeling and projection for the rest of the regular season going into postseason for Tennessee? A little bit, but really not a ton. When you look at the regular season, the SEC is a pretty guard-heavy league. And, you know, Auburn has one of the best front courts in the country, and that's a game where you look at it, it's just a really – it's a tough – I mean, number one team in the country, so it's going to be a tough yeah. matchup no matter what. But when you look at it, especially without Cam Law, it's hard to see how does Tennessee match up with that front court. Besides that, Mississippi State's another one, like you said earlier, is heavy on the bigs. But a lot of the rest of Tennessee's schedule is not that way. Arkansas runs a ton of small ball lineups, and they still have two more games left with them. So I think Tennessee – you know, I, I don't think it makes, you know, maybe half a game difference in the rest of the regular season. Not having Cam Watt, you know, it's hard to exactly handicap. It's certainly a loss, but I don't think it's a debilitating loss when you look at it the next three weeks, kind of like I was saying earlier. It's more when you look ahead to the potential matchups. And, and you know, obviously March Madness is all about matchups. And I think yep. that just creates a big hole for Tennessee where uh, there's um, a lot more matchups now that are bad matchups for Tennessee when you don't have Cam Watt. No, I think it's fair. I think he's he. It's almost, in a way, it was like looking back in that twenty seventeen eighteen team when Kyle Alexander went out when he did because it was you know he he didn't miss very many games in his Tennessee career, but when he went out in the tournament when Tennessee played Loyola Chicago, I I will stand firm and say that when, if Tennessee had Kyle Alexander, they don't lose that game because Loyola Chicago was able to get a lot of drives to the basket, a lot of backcourt, you know, a lot of cuts to the basket back there to get easier buckets than they would have had if they if Tennessee had had Kyle Alexander so I think you're right like the the way that Olivia is able to do more rim protection stuff and was able to kind of negate that that I think could be the biggest issue in in, in a guard heavy league like the SEC like you said it may not even be Tennessee mismatch against bigger teams like an Auburn or like a Mississippi State if these teams that Tennessee plays whether it's now or in March have guards who are very smart and savvy aren't able to you know athletic enough to get uh backdoor cuts and stuff to the basket that could be what really concerns me because I don't I, I like Urosh as a person and him being an enforcer. He does not have quick enough feet on defense to to cover the rim like he needs to. Fulkerson has not been the same Fulkerson. I don't think he has it. Only Hatfield has it, but man, we both kind of danced around the subject of him. But man, like the light just isn't hasn't come on for him this year. And it seems like most of the time when he's been on the court, I wouldn't say he looks lost, but he doesn't seem as engaged and as I guess comfortable out there as the other players and again he's the, probably probably the youngest player on the team he's the youngest player that i think is getting minutes consistently for tennessee i i think it's a case if i'm not trying to you know say he's a bust or anything because again he's a true freshman who reclassified and everything so he's got 
potential and then can still build off that. But it just this would be a nice time, Ryan, to have someone like Huntley Hatfield. You could you could trust that the other fifteen minutes and and be a guy who can, if nothing else, give you good defensive minutes. But unfortunately for Tennessee, they can't really trust him to do that a whole lot. You're right, and I think what you're talking about the defensive minutes that's what Tennessee needs, and that doesn't match up with Huntley Hatfield's strength. His strength is right now as an offensive player, and he's certainly not as developed as he's going to be here in a few years. But he's a talented offensive player. They need that rim protection, they need that rebounding, and they need consistency in both those things. And like you said, Huntley Hatfield just doesn't seem like he's comfortable, uh, confident in what he's supposed to be doing on the defensive end 100% of the time. I mean, it feels like I said, you know, he's getting that early playing time every game. Last couple of games, it seems like it's a defensive breakdown there for him in the first two or three minutes. He's yeah. out, maybe gets back in one more time for a short stint. But he doesn't seem like he's knocking down the door of really building on his some stronger performances in He's not in the spot where it's like, okay, well, it's Brandon Huntley Hatfield's time. It's very open-ended. I mean, Rick Barnes mentioned Jonas Adu, who hasn't played in any meaningful minutes this year. I'd be surprised to see him have a big role. But I think, again, why I think that you're going to see more and more four-guard looks is that I think Jemai Meshack is probably the most consistent of the guys that's going to have to step up. And if he's going to do that, that's going to be a four-guard lineup. I'll be curious to see if they do feel like that's the best option. How much do you see him and Josiah James play on the court at the same time? Because I think those two guys are very similar players in what they can do. Josiah is definitely more developed on the offensive end right now. But Josiah James is going to play the most minutes of anyone on this Tennessee team. I, he's going to be playing 35 minutes a night, and I think Meshack's going to play more than just when Josiah is not in, if he takes advantage of this opportunity, which I think he's the most likely guy to do. So it'll be interesting to see uh, Tennessee running some of those lineups with both those guys on the court, what that looks like and kind of the defensive potential of those lineup because both those guys are really versatile and, and strong defenders. Yeah, uh, James is already playing a good amount of minutes. Like you said, the fact that now Tennessee's going to go more small ball more often, I would imagine, I think his minutes are going to bump up because I think him, Chandler, and uh, Vescovy are going to be the guys that have the most minutes. They're going to be in their 30-plus minutes a game um, moving forward. I, I don't expect to see – those are the only three guys I, I would trust really to be like, you know, you, we can talk about starting – lineups all we want but those are the three that are always almost always on the court and closing time which is the more important time it's going to be interesting to see who else is out there because i imagine ziegler will probably be one of the guys but and then again do you i would imagine fulkerson out there but maybe in certain cases you have a roche i don't know that it'll be it'll be interesting i think ryan to kind of see how this this injury kind of forces maybe rick barnes's hand or whatever to tinker with lineups and go especially when you're playing a team like Auburn who has Jabari Smith and Walker Kessler um or you know like you said when you get to March when Tennessee plays uh some team in the NCAA tournament if they have two really good six nine or better guys out there what does Tennessee do but you brought up Josiah and I'm glad you did because I was going to transition to him anyway um he's been I mean he's been on fire lately I put out the stat from the Vol Hoops Twitter account and I'll, I'll mention it also probably uh, my my Mississippi State breakdown, but over his last him and and Zachary Ziegler both, but just focusing on Josiah over his last eight games, and that's even including the game where he played four minutes against um, Vanderbilt. His offense and his defense both. I mean, his defense has always been there, but his offense, especially uh, as of late, has really taken a a turn. He's making like forty something percent of his threes in that stretch. He's averaging double double or not double 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 figures in that stretch. Uh, he. he it seems like something has come on for him. Is it just a matter of the fact that he uh, has gotten over injuries he's had? Because he seems like he's been injured every year he's been here, and he obviously had an injury this season. Is it a case of he's finally as healthy, or has he said anything to you guys when you've talked to him with the media, or has Rick Barnes said anything that, that's kind of 
made maybe clicked with him that wasn't there before? No, no nothing that they say that, you know, this made it click. Uh, I, I tend to think that it's not just the injuries. I mean, he, to a degree, I'm sure that wasn't helping, but I don't think it was as simple as his issues where he was injured. And I think naturally he was just going to start making more shots from the perimeter, more three-pointers. It was, you know, just the law of averages that he was going to start shooting better. Now that I know he's going to start shooting 40%, you know, I didn't anticipate that. And I think that maybe not to the 40%, but the solid three-point shooting, I think is very reasonable, you know, thing to ask out of him and to expect out of him. What he's done the last two games, it's been next level is his ability to score in the mid-range, his ability to score in the basket, which are things that have been far, I mean, a huge weakness of his game in his first two and a half years, the scoring anyway, other than just spot up threes. So how much do you continue to get that? I'm not really sure. And I think it's clear his confidence is sky high right now. I think almost something seemed to click after he missed that shot at Texas that he came out that next game against Texas A&M. He had a three on the first possession. He scored, I think, six points in the first three minutes. And he was just more confident, more engaged on the offensive end. Now, does he keep making, you know, those challenging mid-range jump shots as consistent as he has, even if he keeps shooting them with confidence? I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not sure that's a fair thing for Tennessee to ask out of him. But I think it's a completely fair thing for Tennessee to ask out of him to shoot over 35% from three, to hit two three-pointers a game, and to continue to be a threat on the offensive end that the other team has to guard and really has to respect. And I think it's realistic to ask that out of him, and I think it's realistic to think he's going to keep on doing it. Yeah, I Gene and I, as listeners can attest, are big Josiah Jordan James fans slash apologists. So it's been it's been a little bit of vindication for me to see him uh, finally like like really playing more into his role and playing really well over the last uh, couple weeks. Or actually, I guess three four weeks at this point. Um, but no, it's it's been it's been nice to see from him because I, I his defense has always been there. He, first day he set foot on campus, he's been one of Tennessee's best defenders consistently. So it's nice to see his offense. It's been there in spurts. And again, his injuries have kind of held him back from that. But you're right. I think there's just a different mentality from him. He's not just settling for threes either. He's still taking threes. And he's making he's he's taking good shots from three for the most most part too. But like you said, he's doing more attacking and doing more not just settling. I think that was the biggest issue from the first like 11 games or so this season was like it's 75 percent or more of his shot selection were coming from from the three point line, and and he wasn't being aggressive enough. He still could be a little more aggressive. But the fact that he's more—he's showing any more aggression now, and that, that he's still taking a good amount of threes. But I know against uh, one of those games where he had—I think he's like one of two or two of three from three. But like he shot like five or six shots from inside three-point line. I thought that's where Josiah is more effective—is when he's taking threes when they're good threes. But he's a guy who, as you said, attacking more from mid-range is able to be more versatile on offense, and he's a guy who can really run on transition. Tennessee likes to do transition offense. He is one of the few guys I think can keep up with a, a Kennedy and a, and a um, Ziegler in those transition offense opportunities. I think that's where he can really shine is if he's more aggressive when there's a transition opportunity. And he's been more aggressive in transition opportunities too. He has been. No, you're 100% right. And I think the thing that uh, with Josiah, you know, kind of going back to you and Gene being apologists for him, he, I think now it's pretty undoubted with both Ziegler coming on and Cam Wall getting injured. Like, he's Tennessee's most important player. He is, and I would yeah. say before the year, he was number two behind Chandler. And, you know, Ziegler, I think, being another guy that can create offense, it was kind of just on Chandler at the beginning of the year to do that. Now that you have multiple guys that can do it, he just, he's the glue that holds the team together. He is able to go to the four when you need him to, which is obviously a massive deal. Now, I thought was a huge deal before. And then just what he does on the defensive end, 
And then when he's just – he doesn't have to be a great offensive player. Tennessee doesn't need to be a great offensive player. But when he's just making enough shots, making enough plays, uh, going to the basket in transition, he had a great play against Texas A&M. One of the best transition plays he's had in his Tennessee career where he caught it on the right wing and just went right by a guy for a basket. Mm-hmm. When, he, when he does that, just he just needs to do enough on the offensive end to make defenses respect him. And he's just a really, really high-level player because he can just do so much on a defensive end from getting steals to blocking shots to understanding where he needs to be at all times, to rebounding, to being a guy that can lock down a wing, to being a guy that can probably not lock down a Jabari Smith, but guard a versatile for a guy who can play on the perimeter as well as down low. I mean, I, I hadn't thought about that. That is going to be an interesting matchup. Him and Jabari. That's going to <laughs> that because that he will be my, he he will be the one matchup against him more often than not. That's going to be. I mean, I I trust someone to have the athleticism to do it. It, it is. Uh, it is Josiah, but boy, that's that's gonna be a tough assignment. Um, you mentioned Ziegler, and I'm glad. And again, I was gonna get to him too because these two players have been uh, Tennessee's X factors, for lack of a better term, over the last uh, three four weeks or so. I mean, Ziegler just went, just came out and won SEC Freshman of the Week, well deserved. Uh, tied his career high just in the second half against South Carolina. Uh, zero points in the first half, eighteen in the second. I mean, this kid, like I I, I talked about it with Gene last week in the, our podcast, like. One of my favorite interviews I've I've done on this podcast so far has been when I talked to his high school coaches and they talked about how how his attitude what what kind of person he was going to be not just a player but kind of what person he is and, and the the quote from the coach was that he's not going to run away from the fire he's going to run into it and embrace it and he's done done that more at Tennessee he he's not nothing scares him he's not going to back down he's played I mean he talked about he's played in the streets in New York you know, no road environment's going to scare him he's going to a tough one here in in Wednesday it's not thought of as one of the the I guess premier arenas in SEC basketball but but on the road in Starkville is not easy I looked up on Ken Palm they have one of the best home court advantages in the country and I think I think the second best in the SEC if I remember correctly maybe the best in the SEC according to Ken Palm again he, that takes data from like data sources doesn't really you know incorporate like crowd noise and whatnot but it, it takes more into like the fouling discrepancies point differential over the last, like I think 60 games or so is what he looks at and determines kind of the ranking of, of home court advantage, but the home's hard place to win at. So he's going to have another opportunity there. But again, I don't, I, I trust him to not be, you know, to be unflappable, but Ryan, I remember having you on uh, as the season was beginning and we we're talking about this roster and you and I both were very excited about Zakai Ziegler because of what had been happening in practice. And I, I've talked with you about what you'd seen in practice and what Rick Barnes had said, even our expectations, I think, of, of both of us thinking he was going to be good, but maybe more down the line, I think he's met and exceeded all of our expectations, and yours and mine included, who I think you and, you and me were maybe higher on him than a lot of people were at the beginning of this year. 100%, and it was a guy that was like, he's really impressive, but he's 5'8". He was in <laughs> high school like six months ago. Like, what? You know, you, you didn't want to put too much on him, and especially the sizing was a big thing you couldn't get or I couldn't get around, you know. I say I couldn't get around. It was the thing that held me back from saying he was going to play 20 minutes a game. Everything else indicated that was the case. But I think what's been the X factor there is just how good he is on defense. I mean, it, yeah. you know as well as I do, if you're going to play for Rick Barnes, first thing you got to do is be good on defensive end and you worry about the offense later. He is not only good enough on the defensive end, he is has Rick Barnes' complete trust. I mean, he couldn't trust him anymore. He has been excellent on the defensive end, and I, that just makes everything he's done on the offensive end a bonus. And I think he's really – to me, it's been impressive how much he's how quickly he's figured out some of the things that when one his size at this level and the speed of this level. I think even now, granted, he doesn't have the ball in his hand as much as Kennedy Chandler, but I think he's 
grown in that area or maybe adapted quicker than Kennedy Chandler did of that. We see Chandler over dribbling sometimes. And again, a lot of that they're putting more on him than they're putting on Ziegler. But he's been absolutely fantastic. And what's really started to happen as of late is the consistency on the offensive end. He was the all year. He was the spark plug for the team. Come in, make a big play on offense, maybe make a big play on defense, always high energy. Now, I mean, it's the last four games he's been in double figures. Six of his last eight games he's been in double figures. And I think whatever it would have been the first 14 games of the season, something like that, he scored in double figures just twice. So he's getting a lot more consistent on the offensive end. And I think it's both him and James, but more so Ziegler is the reason Tennessee's offense is starting to find a rhythm because all of a sudden, instead of just having Kennedy Chandler who can create offense and then Vescovy who can get to the basket when things are moving, you have two guys that can completely – completely get the defense moving, beat their man off the dribble, create the offense to move, and that's what, or excuse me, create the defense to move and really get the ball moving. And that's when Tennessee's offense is without a doubt at its best. And then the last thing, which kind of very similar to James, is he's just shooting it from three a lot better the last few games. You knew he was going to shoot it better because he was shooting it really poorly there. And he shot it solid at the beginning of the year and then kind of poorly in December and then into early January. He's starting to turn that around. And I think he was four, four or four in the second half from threes in that South Carolina game. Obviously, he's not going to do that. But another guy that is a capable shooter to go out there and shoot, I think, 35 percent. Rick Barnes, from the beginning of the year, has said that he was, you know, one of their best shooters in practice. So uh, I think as he continues to make defenses respect him from out, out there, it's going to create more and more driving opportunities, more and more opportunities for him to facilitate offense. And it's just it's an incredible find that Rick Barnes and his staff had. It's made this team just dramatically better and when you look at the future of Tennessee's basketball program I mean it is dramatically more stable and dramatically brighter because you know you're going to have him at least two more years in the orange and white yeah that's the thing too is like you're not just excited for what he's doing this you you know that he's not a one-and-done guy he's probably not a two-and-done guy there's a good chance he's here all four years like Josiah Jordan James you know I don't expect him to leave for you know their professional ranks after this year I more than likely expect him to come back next year so it's a guy that you think will be here three, if not four years. And like you said, that, that harkens back to like the Admiral Schofields and, and, and the Jordan, well, not Jordan Bowen, Jordan Bowden, Lamonte Turner guys that are, that were here for four years and, and Kyle Alexander that, you know, fans got to grow, that got to watch them grow and love them, you know, year after year after year. And I, I think that Ziegler is going to end up, I, I think Ben McKee and Jason Swain have talked about this on the Swain event. Ziegler could end up being, the fan favorite of the Rick Barnes era, he, he could, and I think for some people, he already has overtaken guys like Admiral and Grant, possibly. Um, well, I'll have to wait and see maybe what, the, what he does in, in postseason play. But I mean, a lot of people, myself included, have already just really taken a huge liking to Ziegler and his attitude and his play. But he, he, by the time he's done at Tennessee, could be the most well-liked Rick Barnes player, maybe one of the most well-liked players in Tennessee, period. And, and, and I, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wrap up the discussion about him. But I mean, Ziegler just has like, it's his personality that makes it's this person that if he's on your team, you love him. If he's on an opposing team, <laughs> you hate him. Uh, he, he doesn't, he doesn't jaw off as much as like a, you know, like a Marshall Henderson or even the, uh, uh, you know, the, what's his face? Katie Johnson for, for Auburn. He doesn't really jaw off a whole lot, but he has antics that make you go, um, the view to opposing team go, Oh my God, I can't, I, this guy, he's not like Urosh where also he jaws off obviously a lot more too, but the guy is plenty passionate. And those videos of him, uh, tickling the the Florida guard's arm and nose and stuff just crack me up every time I see him yeah no you're right and a hundred percent I think that's he has obviously Mike Wilson had a great story on him in Newsom yes. last week great great backstory you know incredible testament to his perseverance to get in a spot like Tennessee and he and he plays like you know he plays like that like his hair's on fire he's one of the hardest workers on the team 
everything that makes a fan like a player besides their skill set. I mean, he has it. And then I, I, I think what's so exciting, I mean, he's a good player right now. And there are obvious areas that he can get a lot better. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like he's, you know, a good player. And you're like, man, he's got it. He's got to figure everything figured out. Like there's a tons of areas you look at his game and, you know, I think finishing in the basket, dr- driving in with his left hand, you know, obviously being five, eight, you're going to have to get it, finishing at the basket is a completely new thing in the sec. And no matter what AAU level or high school level you're playing at, so I think there's just so much room for him to improve and continue to grow and get, you know, going forward, he's going to be Tennessee's point guard where right now he's playing a good bit off the ball too. So uh, the sky's the limit for him and uh, you know, everything you look for that makes a, a basketball player likable to root for uh, on the court, off the court, he has it. You bring up something that maybe got me to think you were talking about three point shooting and, and stuff too. And that's been something that when Tennessee has been really good at this year, they've often won. And obviously a lot of times it's been at home, but when they've been good shooting the three ball this year is when they've been the best. And I I got to thinking they've been, for the most part, they've been not shooting as many threes lately as they had been earlier in the year. You look at A&M and Carolina, they attempted 26 and 27 threes in those games. Against Texas, it was 18. Against Florida, it was 24. Uh, LSU was 28. Against Vandy, it was just 23. Kentucky was 23. The first game against Carolina was 21. So in SEC play, they've not taken quite as many threes as they were, especially in non-conference play. But I can't imagine, Ryan, now with, with Camo, of course, even Camo would take a, a, a three or you know, one or two a game usually. Um, but I can't imagine, though, that with Camo out, and again, he wasn't a huge offensive force by any means in the post, but with him out still, I wonder if we'll see the, another little uptick in, in three-point attempts for Tennessee. They've been falling for Tennessee lately, but I'm not expecting Tennessee to keep making 40-plus percent of their threes like they have against AM and Carolina, especially when, you know, Mississippi State, I, I was interested to see when I looked at this on, on Ken Palm. This will actually be the lowest-rated uh, defensive efficiency team Tennessee's played uh, since they've gotten into SEC play and really since they've gotten into their high-major teams because you look at they played Arizona that immediately hopped into SEC play. This is the first time they've played a team that's ranked outside of the top, really, I guess, top 70 of defensive efficiencies since they played USC Upstate on December 14th. So it won't be like a break break per se defensively, but Mississippi State will be the quote unquote worst defense Tennessee's faced in like two months at this point. Um, but still, like with that notwithstanding, Tennessee's faced a lot of tough defenses. They still have several pretty good defenses and a couple of elite, elite ones left on the schedule. If Tennessee's shots aren't falling from three, again, Kamal wasn't like a dynamic offensive uh, threat this year, but he was good enough. He was, he was averaging, you know, he, he could score eight, nine, 10 points a game. Does Ferguson, has he figured enough out? I, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of just spitballing things here because it just makes me think like, does Tennessee go back to shooting 28 to 30 or more threes in a game now that Kamal is out? And how does that affect the offense? Because again, I'm not expecting him to keep making upper, upper 30s to 40% of the threes like they have been in the last few games. You're right. And I think Tennessee had kind of been going back to that naturally just from playing more of the four guard lineup, which I think from just naturally playing that, I think they're, you're going to see them shoot more threes, uh, at least stay in that North 20 range, which it seems like they've kind of settled in the last few games. And where I think one of the underrated things about this offense, and I think another area Camwa is a tough, is a really big blow is Tennessee has been a very good offensive rebounding team. This has been the best rebounding team in Rick Barnes era. And offensively, they've been really strong. They've been, fantastic on a threes and that's makes shooting threes more viable when you can get as many offensive rebounds as Tennessee has. Yeah. I have it right, right here now on Ken Palm offensive rebound percentage, Tennessee's 36 in the country and Tennessee hasn't been top 100 and really any rebounding. Most of the time Rick Barnes has been here. So I think that's a big loss. 
I think Tennessee's offense is going to look similar to what it did before because it, you know, you didn't have a ton of possessions that it was, all right, we're going to go run it through Olivier. But I think when you get in those scoring droughts, I think that was an option Tennessee went to some and was a solid option to get a look, you know, within 15 feet of the basket. He's got that turnaround kind of similar to the one that East Pond shot that he, he was comfortable with. And I think it's just kind of an option that's taken away from you. I'm not sure that it's going to lead to any radical change in how Tennessee runs its offense, but it's just kind of another thing you lose. Well, kind of looking more bigger picture here, we've, we've kind of touched on it a little bit talking about, you know, postseason and stuff, and, and, and we haven't really talked about seeding and everything, but right now I, I think a lot of the projections I've seen for Tennessee has had them, because of their really strong, especially their strong strength of the schedule, both non-conference and in-conference, um, and the fact they haven't had any bad losses, all, all six of their losses have been against quad one opponents, uh, which for those of you who may not know, a quad one opponent is a team that is ranked one through 30 in the net if you play them at home. One through fifty if it's a neutral site, and one through seventy-five in the net if it is on the road. So those are all your quad one games for those types of games. All, all of Tennessee's losses have come against quad one opponents, and their quote-unquote worst losses to Alabama, who is you know very inconsistent, but they're still a pretty good team uh, overall. Um, but looking at the, the the seeding, it's been often more often than not lately. I've seen Tennessee more as like a four seed, which I think is a lot better than a five seed, but it's still not a still not a seed. I feel great about Tennessee being in because there's still plenty of, of 13 seeds that can cause havoc. And and you, we were talking, Gene and I were talking, he, he covers, you know, UTC and Chattanooga is a team that could very easily be a 13 seed in the tournament. And that's a team, if I'm Tennessee would not want to play, if I'm anybody, a high major team, I would not want to play Chattanooga in my first round matchup in the NCAA tournament. But Ryan, how, I guess, aside from obviously winning out, but whatever, what what would you think that Tennessee has to do to get to a three seed? Because I'm looking at, you know, aside from the obvious of, duh, when are your games, win the SEC tournament, whatever. If Tennessee goes and finishes, let's say, you know, 22 and, what, 22 and 8, I guess would be the regular season record. Yeah, because they had to cancel the Memphis game. So just 30, 30 games. 22 and 8 in regular season, and they make it to the semifinals of the SEC tournament. Is that good enough for a three seed or is that four seed territory? What do you think they have to do kind of at minimum to maybe play their way into a three seed and get a better scene? Cause I don't, I don't see Tennessee getting a three seed. They, they'd have to really like they've, they've, I think they've turned a little bit of a corner, but it's also looking at who they've played the past couple weeks really. But I, I, I just have a hard time expecting them to go and beat a, a team like a, a Kentucky and Auburn that I think that would, would give them more, another signature win along with the Arizona one to really propel them into that three seed conversation. Well, yeah, I'm far from a bracketologist, but I think yeah. what you said at the end kind of hit, kind of hit the nail on the head. I think it's about getting uh, another, you know, to get a three seed, I think it probably need to be two more big marquee wins, which obviously Kentucky and Auburn are the only two left on your schedule. Maybe Arkansas on the road is kind of a fringe one of those. Arkansas's record right now probably, they well, Arkansas's team is hard to figure out, frankly. They lost yeah. the first three games in SEC play, lost to Vanderbilt and A&M. They've won seven straight. They haven't really beaten anybody particularly good in that stretch. They have a very hard rest of the season. So if they perform well the rest of the season, I think that uh, game at Arkansas would be another opportunity for a win like that. And in the SEC tournament, unless Tennessee, unless Auburn absolutely collapses and Tennessee somehow wins, wins the SEC regular season, Tennessee in the semifinal would play uh, a Kentucky or, or someone that really it would, would fall under that criteria of another high level uh, opponent. So to me, that's what it is. Besides that Arizona game, Tennessee just doesn't really have any marquee wins. And obviously you have two great chances uh, later this month against Kentucky and Auburn at home in games that I would say is 
and I think Kentucky might be the best team in the country. And I would still say, you'd say both those both those teams. I think Tennessee has 45 percent chance to win. Very winnable games because like, I think Tennessee's a really good team at home. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see. But I think it's probably most about just getting some more marquee wins. Yeah, I mean, if they can get one, even just one of Kentucky or Auburn, that's huge. And again, I don't. My hopes aren't super high that happens. If Tennessee goes out and even loses both those teams and still somehow wins their first SEC tournament since the seventies, like I think that that could be enough. It depends again on who they play to get there. But even just winning the, if you win a conference tournament, I think the selection committee really values that really highly. That regardless of who you play, I, I think that could as long as Tennessee doesn't bomb out. And of course, you're going to have to keep in. You know, this year is also weird because earlier in the year you had a lot of COVID. Not cancel, well, yeah, I guess cancellations with with Memphis, but with like with Tennessee played Alabama on the road, like they had they were without two of their best players. When Tennessee played Ole Miss at home, Ole Miss was without you know I think a couple of their play, a couple of their players, one to injury and I think a couple to COVID. It's so like you, you have those to kind of keep into consideration. You have, I mean, there's just it's a weird year to keep into consideration for a lot of different things, and I think that's I don't know. I I, I had a I guess a more fine tuned point when I started that, that sentence, I kind of like Michael Scott, it kind of just got away from me. <laughs> I started a sentence, didn't know where I was going with it. I just had a thought. I mean, it just, it just, it's interesting because we talk so much about seating and all these things, but really seating can only give you so far. It's really like we've talked about matchups and if Tennessee gets, I mean, if Tennessee gets a five seed and they get matched up with a, a bad 12 seed, that's better than them getting a three seed and be matched up with a really good 14 seed you know, like, or, you know, upper end of what a 14 seed is normally considered. Like it, it doesn't matter really if what where Tennessee seeding is it matters more who they're matched up with and what their bracket looks like and of course we don't know that right now we won't we won't know that for another what month or so at this point um until selection Sunday in almost mid-ish March is when it happens but like I don't know th- this team to me Ryan I, I think they're built for postseason success because we've seen most of the time postseason teams that have the most success are typically more guard oriented or typically teams that are more balanced have good defenses and good offenses, not just really heavily one or the other. There's been a lot of times this year where I thought Tennessee is a really good defensive team, but awful offense. They've been playing better offensively lately. Can they keep it up? Because if they can keep it up, you know, they don't have to be top 30, top 20 offense for me, for them to have success in the postseason. If they can just be top 50 offense type of production efficiency, then I think they have a chance to at least make it a sweet 16. Again, depending on matchups. But I think this team... I think they're built for postseason success. I don't know, but I, I I think from looking at the roster makeup and kind of guys who've come on here lately, especially, I think this is a team that I'm not expecting to make a Final Four run, but I think they can win and get to the second weekend, again, depending on what their bracket looks like when they get there. I agree, and you know I agree that it's also a team that's kind of built for uh, postseason play with the guards. I think some of it's hard to say to what degree, just because you have two of you know, Tennessee's three best players, uh, or three best offense players, or at least are those three guards. And Vescovy's, you know, very consistent. He's had one Texas game about his one bad game the whole season. But Ziegler and Chandler, you don't necessarily have that consistency. And uh, both being freshmen, it's hard to know how those two guys are going to be playing in mm. five weeks. Because look at where, where Zakai Ziegler was in five weeks. Look at where, you know, Kennedy Chandler's had a very up and down year where he's had good stretches and bad stretches. So some of it's kind of hard to project. But certainly, I think Tennessee has that type of team where one you have good enough three-point shooters where if things get hot two you have good guards that can really uh you know go get a basket late in the game or at least get the defense moving late in the game and then i think i don't think i know tennessee has a very good defensive team so 
It, obviously, the offense is the big question because the offense is liable to in the round of 64 to just not show up and be really bad and Tennessee get bounced. But the way Tennessee's headed with that defense, I think winning two games looks a lot more realistic than it did a few weeks ago. Well, Ryan, I, I know it's kind of the slow season right now for recruiting. I don't, I, I haven't paid as much attention to recruiting, you know, now as I was, you know, per se, like over the summer and in the fall. I don't know. You, you covered UT basketball pretty extensively. I don't know. Is there any? Are there any recruiting notes? Anything that we need to keep? In? Obviously, we don't know about transfers and stuff. I imagine Tennessee will be pretty active in the transfer portal this offseason. You know, I'm not saying they'll add like three or four, but I think they'll add more than just one. If I had to guess, especially, I think they'll look. If I were them, I would look for a transfer big man <laughs> for sure, not just the, a freshman big man. But are there any kind of recruiting notes or anything that we we need to uh, cover here before we, I let you go? Not a ton, really, on the 2022 class. Uh, I know the 2023 class has been a couple uh, big names that they've been working to get on campus, I think, in the next few months. Isaiah Evans is one. I think he's actually even a 24. But a couple younger guys, and I think when you kind of look at it, Tennessee's roster, it, and you know you're going to lose John Fulkerson, you know you're going to lose Victor Bailey, and you know you're probably going to lose Kennedy Chandler. So you're losing three guys. you got one of them coming in. If I understand the rule right, uh, those COVID scholarships are starting to work against you. So I don't even think they necessarily gain a scholarship from, from Bailey leaving. So Tennessee's not going to need to bring in a whole lot of guys. Now, obviously a roster turnover, you have no idea, well, you know, player Brandon Huntley Hatfield's a guy that, you know, hasn't had a, a great season. Not that that means he's going to transfer, but I think, you know, it wouldn't be shocking if he transferred and uh, Santiago Vesky wouldn't surprise me if he decided to go start his professional basketball career in Europe. So there's a lot of stuff that's open, uh, but I think it's going to be more heavy on the transfer portal uh, maybe look for Tennessee to add an a, a international prospect. We've seen them do that a lot kind of in the spring yeah. and summer when they're waiting to, you know, when they still have another spot to fill, that's usually kind of where they turn if they don't get someone that they like in, in the transfer portal. So not a ton of stuff on 22. It, it starts more working towards the 23 and 24 class. And then the transfer portal is, as always, will be uh, eyes glued on that once the season ends. Yeah, I think for this 22 class, we'll follow the same kind of pattern that the 21 class did where you had – you know, I think this time last year, I think you just had Kennedy and, and Meshack in the class. This year, you just had B.J. Edwards. And then it wasn't until, uh, I guess, late spring slash the summer when Tennessee added everyone else. They added Powell. They added Adu. They added Huntley Hatfield. They added Ziegler. Um, and, and then this and, and also, uh, what's his name? Uh, Tomba as well. I think this year, again, yep, yep, yep. I think this year, too, is when you'll you'll see, like right now, you just have B.J. Edwards. I think we're going to see you they're keeping spots open and stuff because like you said, there's, there's a pretty decent chance you'll have a, again, a fairly decent amount of roster turn, right? I don't, I don't expect maybe as much as you did last off season, but again, you could have obviously Fulkerson moving on. It wouldn't surprise me to see Bailey move on. It wouldn't surprise me to see, you know, one of these other guys transfer either. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see kind of what happens with the roster. And again, that's going to inform what they can do transfer wise, what they can do, bring in international players, what they can do, bring in and uh, reclassified freshmen like they did last year too. So yeah, it's a, it'll be another busy off season. I don't think as busy, hopefully Barnes doesn't lose two assistant coaches this off season either. Like it did last year. I think that was a, that was a big change. Obviously they went on to take head coaching jobs. So it wasn't like they just left, but still, Ryan, it, it's been a pleasure having you on here, buddy. Um, I always talk, love talking basketball with you. I think you have a good basketball mind and have done a really good job covering UT basketball. So, again, I know I plugged it at the beginning of the show, but let everybody know again here where they can find you. Any pieces you have out? I've obviously, look at your, your stuff on RTI. I know you've talked about uh, both the Vols and Lady Vols moving in the AP polls, preparing for the Mississippi State game. So, prepare, you know, let everybody know where they can find your stuff and what you have currently and what's coming down the wire at RTI. Yeah, you guys find me on Twitter at rshump00. 
uh, rockytopinsider.com or Rocky Top Insider on Twitter. Uh, we'll have all our stuff, rockytopinsider.com. And yeah, start, I had a starting five on Monday looking at a handful of things with this team. And then had a, an article kind of looking at Cam Watt. How does, how does Tennessee replace his minutes? How do they replace his production? So uh, I have all that. Get you ready for a Wednesday night in Starkville. I'm planning on making the drive uh, first time in the hump. So uh, we'll, see, we'll see how it goes. It, it, it was a game when the schedule came out, midweek game in Starkville. I didn't was not what I thought I was going to go to. But the, the way my schedule worked out, it worked out really well for it. So I couldn't turn it down. And it'll be interesting to see if Tennessee can uh, put two good road games together. Because, you know, even – in their road wins against Colorado, Vanderbilt. They didn't play great in the Vanderbilt game. Kennedy Chandler kind of took over that Colorado game. It'll be interesting to see if they can stack back-to-back good ones together because I think that South Carolina game was about as well as they played all year. Yeah, and this is obviously going to be a step up from Carolina in pretty much all respects. Carolina had better defense than State, but State has a better offense, and it's a much tougher road environment. You ready for that late-night tip-off, man? 9 o'clock Eastern. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, t- I told Rick Butler, who I work with, uh, yesterday we watched Tennessee practice, and he was like, but today, eight tomorrow. I was like, I was like, yeah. And if I was thinking eight central time, I was like, no, it's nine o'clock for you. And he thought he might pass out. But yeah, it's going to be a late night and then a quick turnaround to, to make it back to Knoxville for my 250 class on Thursday. Man, I. I hate the late, late tip-offs midweek. They're they're rough, man. I, I don't think I should think there should be a rule unless you're on the West Coast. There shouldn't be a game tipping off later than eight o'clock Eastern time, unless you're on the West coast, which obviously that's different, but I, I think there should be a rule for sec teams. Unless you're playing up on the PAC 12 for some reason, eight o'clock is where you cut it off at, but I don't know. Cause then you have to push other games at six and I hate the six o'clock tip offs. Just midweeks rough to do if you're not playing at seven Eastern. No, you're right. Exactly. Cause you have to stack those two, two tip offs. And it's like Tennessee played at six 30 in that Florida game, which I'm still not really sure why maybe Australian open something was going on, but it's just a 6.30 tip. It made it where the Tennessee's crowd 10 minutes into the game was 10 times better than it was a tip-off, and that's with a 6.30 tip, let alone a 6.1. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a no-win situation, and you're right. You just got to hope for as many 7 o'clock tips as possible because those are the best. We love we love us some 7, 7 p.m. tips. Yeah, 7 p.m. tip-offs on Tuesday, Wednesdays are ideal, but everything else is kind of a weird mix. It's it, six thirty's not 6 and 6.30 isn't bad if you're watching at home, but like you said, if you're going to the game, that's rough. And it, like you said, the opening tip crowd – it does not look great. I mean, but when you get closer to halftime, like, okay, this is actually filled out pretty nicely. Cause I was surprised cause I saw some of the opening photos from that Florida game. I thought, Ooh, that's not a good crowd. And then by the time I got to halftime, I was like, Oh, that's actually really full. Never mind. <laughs> There's like 18,000 people there. Never mind. That's actually not bad for a midweek. Especially. And I have to, okay. I have to go on a quick tangent here. Now, now we're on this right. game. They did my guy. I say my guy, I hadn't thought about him in years. My guy, Jordan Howell. So, so wrong. They did him so, so dirty The point guard on those SEC uh, championship team when Bruce was there with Chris Lawson and Jawan Smith. They brought him back and honored him on the court, not really honored him, but had him on the court and, you know, get him a standing ovation. They did it at the under 12 timeout in the Florida game. There still were a ton of people not there. Florida, Tennessee had, had turned the ball over on seven straight possessions. And what the crowd was great there was students who have no clue who Jordan Howell is. And he got the saddest ovation I've ever seen. He deserved so much oh. better. Jordan Howell, I know you're a listener on the podcast here. I'm looking out for you. I know they did you dirty. And, and it was it was like, I was glad Lamonte came out in the second half and he got like a massive applause. And I was happy for Lamonte, but it, it just made it even worse. I'm sure Jordan Howell was still there. And he got, Lamonte got like four times the ovation he did. So they did my guy Jordan Howell dirty. Justice for Jordan Howell. They need to bring him back for a big game and bring him out in the second half and the crowd's fired up. Yeah, bring him out for the, well, let's say bring him out for the Kentucky game. But, uh... <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, maybe bring out for the Vanderbilt game when Tennessee's probably, hopefully, I mean, I know it's pretty soon, but yeah, you're right. Maybe bring it out for a, a, 
a better game, a better tip-off time on a Saturday. Uh, like he said, second half when the crowd's more engaged too. But yeah, I mean, I like Jordan. That, that's sad. I didn't know that he was. The, I didn't even see that he was. I didn't see it mentioned on Twitter that he was presented at that mark. That, that's how, like you said, it's kind of how little recognition that got. Poor Jordan Howell. I liked him. Yeah, you're, you're right. Justice for Jordan Howell. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it, half the student, not even half. I don't even think 25 percent students knew who he was. It was it was a tough scene. Which that that's part's rough. understandable. I mean, he played here 15 years ago, but just not a whole lot of good thinking through of the time to present him. Yeah, that's rough. Well, Ryan, man, it's been great having you on here. I really appreciate it. And again, all of you who are listening, uh, wherever you're listening at home, on a drive, at, at the gym, wherever you are, thank you so much. Again, if you're on YouTube, give this video a like and share it with your friends, share it with your ball fans or just college basketball fans in general. And subscribe to our channel while you're here. Subscribe to our podcast, which this is what this is, but you can find it, watch us talking or just listen to the audio of it as well. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, you name it, and we're there. Signing off for my guest, Ryan from RTI, I am Nathaniel, and this has been another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss a new episode. Subscribe to our YouTube channel for more video content, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Thank you, Vol fans.